Love the control. Love the command. Love the spacebar and the hard return. Love the words from East Leeds FM. Welcome to episode 10 of Look Closer, the Found Fiction Podcast. If you've never listened before, this show is a creative search for inspiration. In every edition, I'll meet up with a different guest to take a journey around their neighbourhood and explore the places, people and communities around them, unlocking the things that inspire them as creative thinkers and the makers of great things. This time I went to East End Park in Leeds to meet creative professional Taiwo Ogunyinka, one of the most prolific performance poets in the spoken word scene. Taiwo stages workshops and runs Say It With Your Chest, a well-known creative collective in Leeds. No, I'm just waiting for someone. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Alright, let's do it. Well, I'm doing an interview with some guy who I'm waiting for now, so... Right, we're just going to be walking around. Where's it going on YouTube? Uh, well, it'll be on podcasts. It'll be like on Apple Podcasts, oh, Spotify, stuff. Bye. So you do podcasts? Yeah, that's it. Alright. That's it. What's it called, man? Uh, it's called Look Closer. We just kind of go around looking, looking for like ideas and stories and stuff. Is it a Leeds thing or? Well, kind of done it in Manchester as well. Leeds, Manchester, just across the north, oh. north really, yeah. If I Google it, will I find it? If you put like, if you put "look closer," found fiction podcast, you'll be able to find it that way. Thanks. I'll check you out. Yeah. Oh, nice one! Nice one. Nice, really nice, isn't it? Yeah, nice one. Really nice, yeah, nice. Thanks. This is look. Focusing on just like artistic people. Yeah, pretty much. That's so far, yeah. Yeah. Just like people who, yeah, look for inspiration and look for ideas and stories and stuff. So we take them around their community, their yeah. neighbourhoods and stuff. So we're going around like East End and stuff today. So. Uh, We'll be going off that way, I think. Prepared what you're going to talk about? No, it's no, it's totally just spontaneous. It's just like I just ask them questions, and then we don't know what we'll find on the way. So, oh, okay. so you let it go. So it's just like an interview format, I guess. It's like yeah, yeah. it's just a, me asking questions, them answering questions, and then just commenting on what we see and stuff. Nice to <laughs> chat, anyway. Nice to chat. Yeah, man. How's it going, buddy? Yeah, not bad, thanks. How are you? Good, yeah, just chatting to a few folk about, about podcasts and about what we would, I was doing here because I think it looks like I'm just going to sort of 
bother people and ask for their views on stuff. Oh, some, right. some guy was like, oh, are you from Leeds Live? Like, oh, right. Asking for their views on like bus services <laughs> in the north. You should have just played along. Might be a good soundbite. I quite like the people that you chat to when you're just waiting for people. Yeah. Like, you've got like a mutual thing in common when you're just waiting for someone to show up. Yeah, you're both in a state of um, limbo in a way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah definitely. Just waiting. Let us know a bit about where we are and where we're going today. Cool. Um, so we are at the sort of the old Quarry Hill area, um, almost, towards the bus stop. It's something that yeah, I've done like almost a decade, really. Um, going to college, going to uni when I lived with my parents. Yeah. And just so it's my main link from the inner city where I sort of grew up. So to you know town. it really well then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm pretty, pretty, familiar, pretty comfortable with it. Um, and of course it's changed quite a lot like when I first when I first moved to Euston Park um, most of it was like a building site um, the theatre was there uh, least E College I don't recall if it was there um, Leeds Playhouse which was West Yorkshire Playhouse uh-huh. Phoenix Dance Theatre that was there um, uh, Wardrobe was there um, so it's changed quite a lot also it's changed in terms of like new new types of shops and hospitality venues or is it just changed in a bigger way than that um it's changed in that first way and that has also led to it changing in a bigger way and um, uh-huh. there's a lot of regeneration happening in these generally um i've worked in um, the third sector indeed for quite a bit of time um either through the union or voluntary action leads which is now doing good leads so working in the third sector i've had a lot of exposure and research oh, yeah. to regeneration indeed um, let's go left here okay. to regeneration indeed and that has exposed me to um, a lot of understanding about the impacts of regeneration so on the one hand while all this area was social housing and now it's like high-end bookshops and stuff like this bookshop by the cafe um, I, even I can barely afford anything in there Lisey College yeah that's cool but all the students i'm not blaming students for you know the students there they really want to make it something that keeps i suppose they want to make an area that keeps the students on campus so to speak yeah um, yeah. yeah yeah i can see that yeah so uh, you know yeah. it's, it's a it's a sort of pseudo art sector a self-enclosed sort of art sector indeed i suppose over the years walking down through this area thinking about how this area exists even without human interaction, it's just different. You know, you know, social housing exists in a different way to like an art sector or an education sector in terms of the buildings, the landscape, the, the essence of the area. And it exists at a cocoon before it existed as a butterfly. It's not like, you know, it's a caterpillar, then it's a butterfly, you know, it exists in between. And it's also in that state of limbo, I suppose, like you when you were waiting for me. Kind of. Um, realize I was part of that as well yeah yeah everything everything exists in a certain way yeah. even when it's transforming I suppose um, true, true. but yeah I just I, I, I like I like this area I've always sort of really had a special connection to it um, even when it was in a period of transformation and a interlude so to speak it was always a personal interlude for me as well because it was a place I passed during my many journeys to work um, college and uni um, you can see it's kind of 
been here a while all these structures yeah. like the bridge that we're just walking by right yeah. now with like cracked paint it kind of looks fossilized yeah yeah i can also see sort of the extent to which um the council cared about development um <laughs> yeah. you know as soon as we cross over this road now it's like we're in a different part of these um you know we can see all the construction yeah. still happening all the cranes wow. and stuff true yeah so we so we were facing towards i guess richmond hill saxton gardens and then you return round and there's like scaffolding and cranes everywhere yeah. and there's a yeah. big contrast in where the transition's now happening yeah and there's always been like building and regeneration on that area where it just never spills over never. across marsh lane did you did you used to live in one of those my girlfriend did she, well she was kind of back there a bit it was like the, where there's that big chimney thing oh, yeah. it was in that it was like an old mill mm. so they converted a load of old mills into flats this uh, this is kind of like was always here I think it's like social housing but yeah. then they just put loads of cladding on it and mm. doubled the price of rent and now there's professionals in there yeah they took down the I community think, center that was here yeah, as well I think there's a there's a contrast here because I think that that Saxton, the one on the left, mm. was kind of like this, was like Saxton Gardens, mm. which is like these two. Yeah. And now it's kind of got a new yeah. new identity completely. Yeah, new look, yeah. And probably new new tenants, you know, because yeah. of it. Uh, Saxton Gardens was a, probably still is for the most part a very working class area. Um, I remember growing up, a lot of my friends um, lived in Saxton Gardens from school. Um, there was a guy called Priestley, he lived in Saxton Gardens. I, you know, he was just sort of like East Lee's born and bred kind of kid. Uh -huh. um, that just sort of was just about. I knew it was, it was a lovely guy, but you know, he was working class. I was on the border of working class as well, though growing up in Eastern Park. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, I just found it interesting. I just, I've, I mean, regeneration is never something that, regeneration is treated as something that is, you know, for the benefit and for the greater good. And I can see the sort of logic behind it, like, you know, things need to move into the future, so to speak. But if you leave the people behind and you move the buildings into the future, then, you know, what is actually, what is actually moving? Are we, yeah. are we just sort of shaping our interaction with the earth without shaping our interaction with each mm -hmm. other? Mm -hmm. um, and, when, and as always, whenever that happens, people get left behind, people get left to the borders, to the to the undercommons, to the sidelines. As we headed deeper into LS9, our surroundings very much did feel like the sidelines of a city. Of course, every city has its outskirts, but in this part of town, you cross from the familiar to the unfamiliar in just a few paces. It's almost like a fine line has been drawn to demarcate one place from another. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty cool 1902 building with like a nice sort of spire 1902. corner. How can you tell? The, oh, it's the here's the 1902 top. as well. Yeah, down there, yeah. Yeah. Oh no, no, just no. It's just from 1902. You know, that's just oh. it's that type of brick. You know, it's that oh. just from that very specific. Yeah, I just knew that. Oh. <laughs> nothing to do with the fact. I actually that, believed you just now. Nothing to do <laughs> with the, the fact, fact that it's got 1902 that. Cap, Yeah, the 1903 bricks were a yeah. bit more. They were a bit red, a bit more red. Yeah, I uh, see, I see. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that is like such an old building. These streets are like so old. Like they've seen so many things, and 
there was there was actually a poem that I wrote about um, about this area. Um, Where we are now? Yeah, in this corner. Okay. Yeah, talking about whose streets are these? Um, how many of your alleyways have not seen timeless deaths and rebirths? How many times have you not passed out on the corner of no on the corner on the side of um, something something only to be reawakened and re-emerge with the same fire that burned you last night or something something like that was it's a, it's, a, it's another work in progress poem that has been for a few years but I might I might go back and finish it now um, but there, yes. there, there was definitely a point of a point in my writing when I was reflecting more about the almost it feels like eternal nature of being downtrodden but then also not looking at it in a deficit kind of way because there, is, there are assets there are things there are so many things which are necessary about East Ten Park about LS9 that this city will not be able to do without it has so much to offer I think um, not least like myself and my family that were raised here um, my theory about the city centre though um, so if you go into Leeds from the train station um, I mean, most young people, most students come in either by car or by train, mm. uh, very few by bus. But even then, um, if you're coming from a train station, to get towards um, the university, the University of Leeds, you go straight north through the financial and legal district. Um, you go past the financial and legal district and then you come out on the hedgerow. Um, you've got the library on one side, you've got um, City Hall on the other side, you've got um, Millennium Square, um, and then you've got Civic Hall, you've got the museum, you've got this huge um, cultural area, um, cultural, culture and arts area. Um, and then you walk up and get to the university, you go past Becker, you go past Rose Bowl, you get to the University of Leeds, and then you're in the, you're in the center of the student experience, basically. Mm. Um, you go further north, you get Head in the, you get Hyde Park as well, which is locally a working class area, but it is full of students. So if you're not from Leeds, when you come into Leeds, you're immediately hit by all the beautiful, expensive huh. things. You're hit by the financial and legal sector and the culture and arts and all that stuff. If you if you get coming via the bus station, normally you would have seen all the downtrodden areas, all the closed buildings around the Quarry Hill area, all just social housing many years back. But now you have the college, you have all the work that's been done in that area. Um, you have the playhouse, you have the another sort of mini art center sector so it feels to me like there's a really concerted effort in the redesigning of the city center to hide the reality of it like where we are now is just such yeah. a stone's throw away from yeah. the city center and my fear is that in order to continue to hide how much or rather how little they're doing for um, people in like LS9 and Eastern Park they're just going to continue to build the city centre over their homes um, like they have been doing and it's you know people come to Leeds and like why it's such a you know it's in the north but you know it's such a up and coming city there's so much wealth and that's the narrative beauty yeah and that's the narrative that has been constructed by the layout of the city centre and it's sort of 
it's the same sort of ideology, same sort of um, capitalist aesthetic that you know led to the police chasing and killing David Oluwale, wanting to hide the hide the reality of Leeds under the beauty of the city centre. David Oluwale was last seen fleeing two police officers on April 18th, 1969. He was later found drowned in the River Air. His death led to the first prosecution of British police for the involvement in the death of a black person. It was the first recorded incident of police racism. In 2019, an event called Remember Oluwale was held to mark the 50th anniversary of his death. Taiwo performed at the event, which highlighted the continuing struggle for social justice in Leeds and beyond. I really have to like get the essence right first. Like I said, with everything being a work in progress, what I intend to say with a poem, um, this is a challenge with, with like, my approach to writing. That and the reason why I have such low output, I never get anything finished. Like what I intend to say when I initially start writing the piece, when I come back to it like two, three months later, I'm like, oh, I want to say something else in this piece. Yeah. So I change it. Um, and then you know, I go away and then I change and I go back to the poem yeah. and because I've changed the poem has to change uh, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. it's, really, it's really difficult for me to finish a poem you uh, keep reacting and mm, responding to, to what you've written mm, and, uh, yeah it's a never ending yeah. reaction I suppose yeah, I, I think I just need to like find a month or something where I have nothing else to do I'm not leaving the house I'm not changing this month I'm just going to finish all these poems and put them away I'm like good they're finished they are a marker of who I am and where I was at a certain time and date um, in a certain place. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, put out a collection as that um, time and place and say that is that is Taiwo then and there. Yeah. Um, I then move on to the next time and place of completion of poems. So, so when you are sort of tweaking the poems, revisiting them, is that in, in terms of quality, you're like refining the quality of the poem in mm. your eyes, or is it kind of bringing new elements to it that you didn't see when you started it? Both, both. Because there is a, well, quality less so, because, I don't know, it, it's changed, I suppose. In my early days, in my early days as a writer, um, I focused a lot more on my quality as a writer. You know, I'd never written before, so I had all the ideas, all the context, everything I wanted to write about. So those ideas needed less refining more so than the quality. But then after a while, I'd written about everything I wanted to write about. And right. I'd taken my writing to a certain level of quality. In terms of growing as a writer, I've more been like um, collecting experiences and contexts and more inspiration for my writing and taking those things down um, and then once I've gotten all this context, all these subjects, um, then I'll go back and build myself as a writer and then put that into refining those contexts and then making poems nice. out of them and every now and then okay. within the process I have a poem that I'm like oh I'm happy with that I put it out of there, I put it aside, that's finished. Um, but largely that's the main reason why um, I have such low output because I don't, I don't just write a poem, I write a collection in a go or... Like a, a 
concept concept sort yeah. of numerous yeah. parts of the one one whole yeah, yeah exactly it's one journey because everything 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 is linked and it is like you know looking out the minute changes in between things how one thing happens because of the change is something that has been contacted with um, yeah. all of that area all of LS9 that I walked through all the stories there mm. are intertwined and they are linked with the stories in the city centre and larger stories about the people in the city centre and in LS9 and that's it for this edition of Look Closer the Found Fiction Podcast Thanks very much to my special guest, Taiwo Ogunyinka, who took us on a creative adventure around East End Park and LS9. And that's a wrap on the first series of Look Closer, the Found Fiction podcast. Thank you very much to everyone who's followed us, literally, on the journeys we've taken. We've had some inspiring conversations with many artists, poets, writers, as we've explored places of significance to them. We've been in Leeds, Manchester, Sheffield, York, Halifax and everywhere in between and we've made some amazing discoveries along the way. We're looking forward to exploring even more places in the next series but before that we're taking a break for a few months to focus on other projects like our street literature event You Are Here which we'll be launching in August. Remember to hit subscribe so you know exactly when new episodes are released and please email us at hello at foundfiction.org if you have any suggestions for the show. Thanks for listening to Look Close at the Found Fiction podcast. That's it for this time. Until next time, stay positive, connected and kind. Love the cases, love the clauses, love the adverbs and the antecedents, love the words. From ELFM. So you're listening to East Leeds FM on World Voice Day. So wherever you are listening from, you are very, very welcome. I have two uh, experts and fantastic advocates for the human voice with me today. Uh, Jane Oakshop, hello Jane. Hello. And Louise Gibbs, hello Louise. Hello Peter. Both based in Leeds. They're going to be talking about uh, their, their work with voice and also about the importance of voice to them and to us too, implicitly. So, Louise, first of all, um, yeah, what's World Voice Day? What I'd never heard of it till you mentioned it recently. So, what happens and what is it about? Well, it's every year uh, on the sixteenth of April. It is actually an American organisation that set it up, but a lot of people involved in voice thought this is a good opportunity to make people sort of think about their own voices, which we, you know, all the time we take for for granted. So this is to make us think about the care of our voice, the use of the voice, what the voice means, and uh, just to focus attention on it, just even for a day. 
So there are events happening all over the world, presumably today. Is that right? That's right. So they're usually uh, sort of information, sort of issues of information, how to take care of your voice. But it could be to do with singing, speaking, uh, public speaking, and what the voice means, and just even general topics like identity. So just anything that makes you know, brings you into sort of some stronger focus about what the voice is and what it does and how hard it works every day for us. Well, that's a thought, isn't it? And, and actually, that's a great thought, too. We take it for granted, don't we? And when it isn't there, when we lose our voice for any reason, uh, it is such an extraordinary uh, kind of loss, however temporary. I mean, it's, it's, it's so much part of us. Yes, and we'll be talking about the relationship between voice and identity later on. But uh, to come to you, Jane... First of all, um, if you would, tell us what you do with voice and your work is, what your work is, but also a little about the history of your work with voice over the years. Well, I, I think of myself really as rather like a sports coach uh, because uh, I think it's really exciting. Um, I mean, the human voice, as you say, we take it for granted. Um, it, it's our main means of communication. Uh, I mean, our thoughts, our ideas, our emotions are all electric, aren't they? You can't physically touch them. And the only way we can communicate those things is through our muscles. And as a voice coach, um, I reckon my job is to help people use the muscles that produce voice, use them more effectively uh, I mean, uh, it's like any other sport. It's it's a great um, <laughs> voice is a great team building thing among among other things. Um, and if you use the muscles properly, you get across the message you want to give. The voice you can hear in your head, um, which so often gets tied up in either nervousness or excitement, and comes out not perhaps meaning or sounding like you want it to. So that's what I think voice coaching is. It's helping people be themselves as they would wish to be. Well, yes, absolutely. And so often uh, one hopes <laughs> that tension isn't coming out, isn't, uh, isn't what he people are hearing in your voice, but I'm sure they are. We, do we, I'm sure we pick it up uh, subconsciously. Louise, I mean, you know, as far as I know, you're you're very much a, a singer. But I mean, tell us a little about what you do at the moment and how you got there. Well, um, I've been a singer for a very long time. I'm almost embarrassed to say how long. But <laughs> uh, but it's what when I started to get more involved with teaching, I thought, well, I have to go and study voice because I'd been a professional singer for about 20 years at least before I actually had my first singing lesson. And that was because I didn't, I didn't even think of the voice use. I just assumed, I think, because I, I trained actually as a pianist and composer. And I, I think I just assumed that it was very easy to use your voice because I'd never had any particular issue to do with it. And it wasn't until I began to teach other people that I realized uh, that it was a struggle to get their whatever ideas they had and whatever way they wanted to use their voice. They, they, they struggled to sort of kind of get that together and that wasn't quite as simple. So 
I realized, well, I really need to learn about this. I really need to figure out how to teach somebody. And that was so useful for me personally, because as I got older and all the things that I took for granted, I realized I couldn't take for granted anymore. And then that's where being able to sing was actually really very useful. So as I was learning about how to teach other people to sing, I was also thinking about it more consciously for myself, uh, which took me to things like vocal anatomy, because as Jane said, she deals with muscles. And I really hadn't thought of singing from that point of view. I think I was thinking, thinking of singing as dealing with words, dealing with melodies, uh, using my ears to hear musicians better, to be able to interact. And um, so what learning how to sing took me back to a more conscious appreciation of actually how it works. Do you think that uh, we should all be more aware, Louise, of the anatomy of our voices and would that help us in, in taking care of our voices? Well, I think, you know, I think it's a wonderful thing to be blissfully ignorant of how the voice works because that must mean that it's doing what you want it to do. I mean, I, if you, because when you become aware of the voice generally, I mean, I know that sounds ridiculous, but we actually, it's, it's quite a, um, in this case, ignorance is bliss. Not that I'm advocating ignorance, but in this case, if it, if it really is working well for you, then that's a, you're very fortunate. But for a lot of people, they really don't become aware of their voices until their voices don't do for them what they'd like it to do. And that's, you know, sometimes can be a very difficult place to be at because you're either losing your voice or the voice is not sounding as you want it to sound or the voice is indicating something else. It could be, um, it, it could be some trauma of some kind. It it might, and that's what I mean. Is you know, to be blissfully ignorant is a, is not a bad state to be in, um, as regards the voice. So, Jane, yes, you. I mean, I know that that um, for you, the voice is inextricably linked with with health and and with our sort of mental health in a way. Um, could you talk about that a bit? It, it's a very big subject, isn't it? Um, I, I've, I'm fascinated by the number of people who come for voice coaching because they feel that no one ever listens to them. Uh, they, they can't make themselves heard in meetings, for example, or um, they can't speak up um, in even family reunions. Um, in a way that gets them listened to. And that, that's really depressing. Um, and very often it's, it's from uh, either inbuilt shyness or it can be because they don't want to seem loud. They don't want to seem arrogant. So they muffle back what they're saying. They use the muscles of the speech systems deliberately slack. Uh, and it's like um, anything else um, in physical activity. If, if you really go for it, use um, 
for example, a tennis stroke, you can hold the racket in a sloppy sort of way, or you can really mean it, mean the stroke. Um, it's the same with words. If, if you use, for example, your lips and tongue to produce um, a firm sound at the beginning of a word, uh, for example, people hear you better uh, and therefore you tend to get a better reaction. Uh, often people can't hear. Um, there's a lot of um, deafness around. People are getting hard of hearing at a, a younger age these days than we used to. Um, and, and so very often people who feel they don't have a voice, um, that's absolutely not true. They not only have a voice, but they have lots of ideas um, to put across with it. But if they don't get positive reactions because people can't hear them, or they're not clear, then of course um, that's a downward spiral. Does that make sense? Totally. I think it's fascinating how, yeah, it, so somebody might come to you without a physiological problem, but with a sense that they're not being listened to, not being heard. It Absolutely. Play, it, it plays into all kinds of big, uh, big issues like, I think, well, maybe gender, uh, sort of the way that children are, are still really not listened to, young people not listened to in families and so on. I mean, how, how do you go about, if somebody says, I'm not listened to, I don't feel listened to, yeah, if, do you tackle that from a point of view of like, speaking louder or more clearly, or, or, or can you tackle the bigger issue? <laughs> um, well, I find it's much quicker to, to help people through the muscles, because it's so simple. I mean, the mind and the emotions are so complicated, but in the same way as the emotions can affect how you stand, how you use your mouth. For example, if you're depressed, you tend to talk really without moving your mouth very much and everything gets lost. In the same way, you can make your physical being affect your mental state. Um, so for example, helping people um, give their lungs more space, for example, um, so that they get more oxygen. That makes them feel better already, and that helps the muscles work better, it helps the mind work better. Um, and the having got the, the muscles working, you can then um, guide them into firmer words, words that make pictures, um, and can be satisfying in themselves to speak. So speaking becomes a physical pleasure, like eating. Um, it's the same muscles after all, you know, the muscles of the mouth. Um, so many people use words like cold, lumpy porridge. They, they get through them, but they don't enjoy them. Whereas words can be enjoyed so much as a physical pleasure. Uh, and then they take you out of yourself and your message becomes more important than the fact that it's you delivering it. So we have to love the words as well as our... Absolutely, as you've been saying for years. <laughs> Absolutely. But, um, and I think that's also really interesting that the way we 
stands, the way we, pre I suppose it comes down to presence, the way we present ourselves in a group uh, and, our, uh, and the way we signal our, in our social intention, whether we are confident and whether we feel confident, that sort of mobilizes people at people's attention. Uh, um, just in that very act, I'm just wondering, Louise, whether we, in terms of working with singers, uh, you you take the same tack uh, in terms of, yeah, you know, in, in giving singers confidence. Um, yes, I do, because for me, the speaking and the and the singing voice are sort of aspects of of each other. They're not they're not in any way different, and they're certainly not fundamentally different in their production. I mean, there are certain things that you do in a singing voice that uh, is a kind of heightened speech. So you've got more range in terms of pitch, more highs and lows, and and you and you get longer vowels. But essentially, the method of production you're still you're still using airflow, air pressure. You're still going through the larynx, which is your voice box, and the vocal folds or vocal cords. You're still resonating in your mouth. You're still using your tongue to articulate words uh, on that physical level. Uh, so there isn't any essential difference. But I do have, um, I've kind of, over the years, I've reduced my warm-ups to two, to two kinds. And one of them is very physical. You've just got to find some way of really physically warming yourself up. And that means increasing blood flow, raising the heartbeat, um, and that increases your depth of breathing so that you are perhaps breathing longer and deeper and taking more air uh, in and out of the body. Because this just increases um, you know, your levels of oxygen and your levels of attention. So it, I think people have to realize that the voice is very physical, even though for them it it belongs as a sound, which seems almost like, you know, ephemeral, something that's just in the air. But it is, as I say to my singers, you know, singing, it's it's not any kind of special mystical experience. It, it really is just about blood and guts to bring it down to, you know, just bring it down to sort of basic things. And, um, and usually sort of a lot to do with snotty noses and saliva, you know. So, so on, that, on that particular sort of idea is, um, is keeping the voice hydrated and because saliva is such an important aspect of being able to keep everything moving well. You know, this is this is all very, as I said, quite basic. Whether it's kind of physical action or, you know, muscles or the amount of uh, sort of lubrication in the mouth, and you know, it, it is. I mean, on one level, it's all about words and ideas and the way and feelings and emotions. Because when I'm teaching singers, I'm I'm trying to get across to them or remind them it's not that they don't know i'm just trying to remind my singers that they're always dealing with two essential pieces of information and one is what is meaning the meaning of words the storytelling what you're trying to say what you're putting across and on another level is what does it feel like what are these feelings what am i trying to communicate because the words can say something and the feelings can mean 
something much more subtle. Like I can say to you, how are you? Or how are you? Or how are you? How, you know, how are you? And so it's got all that music that's gone into those words um, changes the way that we hear them and what and what that meaning is for us. Really, the way you just you were saying those words, those simple words, "How are you?" makes me uh, really appreciate how what a narrow range of, of vocalization we we use. We don't really use our our, our voices to, to the extent we don't use the vocabulary we we actually have in our heads. We use a very narrow range but Jane is that part of your work in terms of of helping of, of kind of enlarging people's sort of ambition around vocalization um yes um I mean the exciting thing I think about um voice is that that every living creature has a voice uh, but it's only humans who can articulate words and so um, the whole focus of, of all the technical training you may do, um, the work on muscles and so on, the whole point of it for a, vo um, a spoken voice coach is to, be, for, to enable people to make the most of their words, to enjoy their words. Um, and English is such a rich language in words that make pictures just by the way they sound. Found. And so often the, these words are um, not treated like gifts. For example, um, the word um, boom is, is a very onomatopoeic word. It really, really almost is the thing itself. Boom. If you give it the full respect, if you, if you give the sounds all the muscularity they need with your lips, um, Whereas, for example, a word like fluffy or smooth, they, you, can, you can use the sounds in them to almost make, see, well, really make people see the pictures and feel what you feel about them. And I think that's immensely exciting and it should be the goal of every speaker, really, because it's the way to engage listeners once you help them to see pictures you've really got them absolutely and we always say when we're working with uh, you know young writers in the medium of radio say in poetry for radio or, or radio drama that it's about creating pictures and and indeed with words and uh, it, you know radio is the most visual medium because it's it's <laughs> words doing their words doing their job i'm wondering about this phrase to find your voice to find our voice um what does that mean to you louise well certainly in terms of dealing with singers you're always wanting to encourage um people to have their own voice i think that's why i mean i'm a you know that's I, i've always been a jazz singer and the thing for jazz is that it requires you to have a unique voice. There isn't an ideal, there isn't an idea of an ideal jazz voice because they're so, they're so varied. If you listen to somebody like Ella Fitzgerald, who most people would be familiar with, or Billie Holiday, they don't sound like each other. Sarah Vaughan would be 
much less known, but she's got a very distinctive voice. Or somebody like Blossom Deary, who's got this very light voice. Or somebody like Peggy Lee, who's, you know, got this kind of low, soft voice, which a lot of people sound associate with jazz. And then, as I said, Blossom Deary, who's got this soft, light voice like this. So this uniqueness is is something that I think I'm always trying to foster in my own singers. And I'm sure Jane is with her, with the people that she comes across because it's not, I, I certainly don't feel like I'm wanting to give somebody a voice that doesn't belong to them. Because I think people have got to feel like whatever they're doing, they're still being themselves. Even, even the singing voice. Uh, I know that a lot of people may not think this about a classical singing, but if you take classical singing, for instance, there is an idea of an ideal voice, and that's why so much training goes into that ideal voice. But that's also to do with amplification without any electronic or electrical means. So um, there was a specific technique to make sound carry. But the, uh, the jazz voice has the, has the microphone, and the microphone really liberated us from having to just be considered to make us think about the voice just to project. So the microphone allows us to actually speak like ourselves, like we are here, you know, like we can have this intimate conversation. We're not trying to project it across the room, which makes us do something additional to ourselves that might not be necessary when you've, when you've got amplification. But that business of identity, oh, is I think crucial so that people uh, they they feel authentic to themselves, and I'm sure that matters to Jane as it does to me. Is helping people feel like we're helping them strengthen their identity, not to be given a new one or a different one, unless of course they're looking for a new one or different one. <laughs> <laughs> That's absolutely true. When you come to accent. I get a lot of people coming saying, I think my accent's holding me back. Um, but very often it's, it's not the accent at all. I'm always horrified if people want to get rid of their own accent that they were brought up with. Um, yes. So, for example, someone born yeah. from Birmingham, they get this very specific sound. Um, and, and who would want to rob them of that? The sound that um, Shakespeare probably had. Um, I think um, identity and accent are very much tied up together and someone finding their own voice is much more likely to be happy in it if they do it in conjunction with, with allowing their accent to be part of them. It adds to the richness of conversations with whoever. Sure. I mean, what's, what intrigues me as well, both of you, is, is that... Um, I can, I mean, somebody, friends of mine who sadly are my parents who aren't in the world anymore, but I can actually hear their voice in my head. You know, I can play, play them as they were, and it's so much them, and and that their voice is them, and yet so many of us, when we hear ourselves say on the radio or played back and being recorded for the first time, go, oh, "That's not me. That's not me." <laughs> so what's that? What's that about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's the same for singing. That's the, that's very much the same for singers. It is it is interesting though to ask people when you know. So, 
what voice, you know, like if you've got a handful of voices, can you tell me who they, these people are? And um, I know a lot of people have a kind of ideal sound, you know, like, oh, I'd like to sound like so-and-so. I'd, I'd like to sound like Richard Burton. And I'd think to me, yeah, wouldn't we all? <laughs> or, <laughs> or, you know, Kirsty Walk or somebody like that. <laughs> But that's that's easy to do actually. A lot um if if you for example, have you have you ever thought if I could stitch my voice differently out of any material I wanted, what would it be? What would what material would you choose for your voice? Uh, and it's really interesting how even just visualizing that, like your throat made of black velvet or um ice cubes or um, hot lemon, um, how that changes the, the sound that people make. It's really interesting, the effect of the, the visualization on the actual um, muscularity of what happens in the vocal tract. That's fascinating, isn't it? Is that an exercise you use, Jane, with people? Oh, absolutely, depending who it is. Um, some people think more technically, they like to know what goes on under the bonnet, like you were saying about anatomy, they like to know exactly what muscle yes. moves where. And others um, don't want to know. They, no, um, no, that's they see true. things yeah, in emotional terms or colour, for example. Yes. What colour would you like your voice to be? Okay, black velvet, there it is. Well, I certainly go... I mean, you were talking about accents before, Jane, and I was thinking, you know, there are certain vowels that we need to encourage people to sing clearly. And that would be A-E-I-O-U, or phonetically, A-E-I-O-U. And over the years, um, there are certain vowels or production of those vowels that are actually very, um, they're very beneficial for singing they get the right resonance. So they encourage people to experiment with that resonance. So, you know, I, and I was made aware of this by a, a Nigerian student of mine, and her name was Vera, and Vera come to me and one day she went, oh, Louise, oh, Louise, and it was a little, oh, and I thought, oh my goodness me, that's what it is, it's this, I wondered how she got this very, this great richness not only in the lower part of the range, but at the top as well. And so when she was singing high, she still had this oh, oh, oh. So I started experimenting with my students and I said, look, I, I want you to produce for me this lovely oh. I called it the Nigerian oh. And, um, and it, it was amazing how it changed my singers um, and their idea about oh, because for them, it's a O, or it's an R, or it's a, you know, it's got a different sound in their ears for them. But just getting into experiment with this O, which actually, uh, in terms of the mouth space, it's, it creates quite a large uh, oral, oral space, that's the space inside your mouth, and uh, in the throat. So, and then I started thinking, it's like, as I had a, you know, you're talking about local accents. Now, I've lived in Yorkshire for 17 years now. And not long after I arrived here, I had a student uh, from Bradford and he was really into Elvis. And um, he was telling me, 
I need, uh, you know, I need to do these words. And he said, I said, well, what you need is a, is a really a good air vowel, you know. Oh, the day you met me, oh, the, the day, and I was like, you know, like a, like a, like a air bagum, you know, and he says, what? He says, what are, you, what are you telling me this for? He says, I've spent years trying to get rid of my Bradford accent, <laughs> and you're telling me to get it back? And I said, I said, yeah, whatever you do, don't ditch the air vowel. The air is perfect for singing. So, I mean, with a Nigerian or and a Yorkshire air, you know, you're really, really quite well set for singing. <laughs> and, a, and a home counties R and um, an Italian E, you know, you've got R, A, E, or and then a ooh, um, you know that you can you can choose what you do with your ooh. But I mean, I, I felt like I'd I'd got I'd got the whole international range <laughs> and um, and some good vowels out of it for singing. Wonderful. I'm it's fascinating, isn't it? How accent it is. is. It is. And that's it's... why people, as you said, Jane, you know, they turn up and they've uh, they've already got whatever is local, and that's part of their um, the formation of their vowels and their tongue and whatever but you work with that but but as you said I, I find this as certainly as somebody coming from New Zealand when I when I came to England and I had never really considered how important local accents were and also um, I had never considered the impact of class and how people spent quite a lot of time trying to fit people in either regionally on terms of their class by essentially the kinds of vowels that they produced. And um, I, I mean, I'm much more sensitized to it now. But I think the point that you're making is that that's loosened up in the over 30 years that I've lived in the UK. And it's more about being confident with what you've got and rather than apologetic because I think that's in many ways probably what you and I are, are helping people to do is to not is to to enjoy and to love their voices more that it works the other way around for actors who want to have a new accent for a particular part uh, and that's fascinating too because in finding the new accent uh, it's it's very easy to um, lose sight of the character they're supposed to be playing. So it all becomes about the accent. And I found the mm -hmm. quickest way to help mm -hmm. them is to um, suggest an accent is the way you wear your mouth. Uh, for example, the American accent is um, the tongue is, is much further back in the mouth than any English accent. Um, and I've, I've discovered that the word yellow, if you can put your tongue far back in your mouth, try it, um, you get a very American sound, yellow, yellow, that very yeah. dark L at the back. And once you've got that sound, you can go back to it, any actor, um, you can go back to it at the beginning of each of your lines, just yellow. And then do the line. This is when you're practicing, of course. Um, and it's amazing how quickly you can acquire a totally new sound and become very much at home with it. So then you can become the character. 
So it's quite the reverse of staying with your own home accent to be yourself fully. Um, I think dealing with actors is, is fascinating from that point of view. Absolutely. Um, so I'm aware that we don't have unlimited time, but I'm just wondering in terms of people taking care of their voices, um, is there anything practical that either of you, both of you, could impart to our listeners? Something they can do, or listeners, I should say, at home, uh, that perhaps in privacy or with other people, uh, to, yeah, to, to kind of, yeah, to, to, to loosen up the voice, to, to own their voice more, to, to just have, to be, have fun with it. Something to own the voice more is probably very helpful because that um, in itself is relaxing. Uh, because if if you own your own voice, people respond really well, um, and therefore you feel more relaxed. And of course, relaxation is is the <laughs> the thing we all aim for, isn't it? Um, it's, I've got one. Go for it. Um, I would call it sound rap. Uh, it's very very simple, and you can do it on your own or with a friend, friends. Um, it is just take a sound that you make with your lips or your tongue. For example, let's go for a tongue one, d, d, that you get at the beginning of words like um, drunk, drizzle, danger. Um, and you say that sound really strongly, say about four times, like d, 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 and then perhaps put um, a rhythm to it. I think the most useful advice is to keep yourself hydrated. And that's where water is useful. Uh, but to make, if you're going to do something in the public, like speak at a meeting, or you've got an important uh, you know, meeting with people, even if it's just a private meeting and you're concerned, Make sure that you drink at least a two hours before because a lot of people think that drinking at the time you need the water or you think you need the water or you're speaking is the right time. You actually need to prepare yourself. Also, your voice is uh, an expression of your health, the way that you sound. So um, keep yourself well. Try to avoid smoky areas. Try to avoid dry areas. Uh, try to avoid dust, um, that, that's what dries the voice out if you find you're going to be speaking somewhere and it's important. Um, it, it's, it's basically just actually, and, and moving your tongue, I mean, it's interesting you have a, an exercise for the tongue because I have one for the tip, for the middle, and for the back, and it's just quite simple. The tip of your tongue goes d, 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 the middle of the tongue is na, 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 and the back of the tongue is ga, ga, ga. And these are just to get the parts of the tongue moving so that when you get them all together, you can go di, na, ga, di, na, ga, di, na, ga, di, na, ga. And that's just getting you, uh, getting the tongue moving more flexibly. And that might be something that's, that might help you. Or something just to warm up like as an mmm. Or brum brum brum. 
these are little things that we can do, just like little warm-ups, little exercises, and they can get us uh, just, as it, as it says, warmed up for speaking, for singing. And actually to put them into practice, um, a very simple tip to make you meet, sound as though you mean what you say is to make the first sound in the word a little bit stronger than you normally would. Because if you do that, if you make the first sound a bit stronger, then the rest of the word will carry more weight as well. And people will hear you better. Wonderful. Great advice from, from both of you. Thanks so much. I mean, I, I suppose just finally, I talked to right early on, uh, Jane, about the way that voice can unite us. I mean, our voices are very singular and individual and particular to us, but the joining of voices together can bring such joy. And I, I, you seem to have, a lot of people have missed choirs this, uh, this last year. Any thoughts about that, Jane? People have been speaking all through lockdown via online, via telephone, WhatsApp and so on. And um, I think that has been an absolute lifesaver where we can't touch each other. Um, to be able to touch each other with our voices has been a real bonus. Um, I oh. often think how the early settlers who went off to America and Australia and New Zealand, knowing they would probably never see their families again, um, lockdown could have been a bit like that for us if we hadn't had um, the telephone and the video services. Absolutely. Louise, what about you in terms of singing and singing together? Well, of course, singing is more than just using your voice. It is about being together, isn't it? So this, these are all the things that we've missed. But I, I think Jane is absolutely right. Our voices have suddenly become important to us and uh, in terms of communication. And I think we've become acutely aware, not only of the mechanics of the voice, but why it's important to us. Actually, it's more important, isn't it, with, with online, because we're missing out on two senses. We haven't the sense of um, touch or smell that we have in yeah. um, live communication, person to person. Um, and therefore, the voice and the visuals are more important than ever. Thanks so much to both of you for speaking to us today on World Voice Day. And of course, we've the other part of this is listening. We'll have to do a program on listening sometime. Yes, um, crucial. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but if you are listening to this, you want to hear more programs about voice, then we are broadcasting a whole raft of them today on World Voice Day, and you can listen to them all again on our website. Just go and uh, Google or search on our website for World Voice Day. Well, thanks very much to Louise, Gibbs and Jane Oakshot. Thanks so much for coming. Thank, Thank you, Peter. Peter. Thank you Bye. for having us. And Chapel FM. Love the commas. Love the apostrophes. Love the colons and the question marks. Love the words from East Leeds FM. No, no, little. No, no, little.